Hey, hello, and welcome back to the Anxiety Book Club. This is episode number 47, and I'm very pleased to be joined today by Dr. Frank Anderson. He is an author, psychiatrist, therapist, speaker, and trauma specialist who spent the past three decades studying neuroscience and trauma treatment. He's the author of two books, including this month's Transcending Trauma, Healing Complex PTSD with Internal Family Systems Therapy. Uh, thanks so much for being here. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. So, you know, whenever you read a good book, you know, you wind up writing a lot of stuff in the margins. And so this book is just chock full of all this stuff. Good. Glad to hear that. So let's assume the audience doesn't know a whole lot about some of these acronyms. And yes. let's just start out with, um, and I think there's a definition, but what what is complex post-traumatic stress disorder? Yeah. It's CPTSD. It's interesting because I, you know, I've been doing workshops for a really long time and always start with different types of trauma. And it's really fascinating for me that my list keeps growing and growing and growing over the years because we have more identification of different types of trauma, right? There's an acute stress reaction when you've had a single incident. There's when you've had two or three instances of overwhelming experiences and then you get chronic PTSD. There is the arena of um, repeated relational violation over time, whether it's in childhood or in adulthood. And that's the category of complex PTSD. So complex PTSD is really relational trauma. It's people who have grow, grown up in dysfunctional families and you have an alcoholic father or a depressed or psychotic mother and you have grow up with this constant relational violation hundreds and hundreds of times, not two or three, right? When you're living in a dysfunctional environment, that those kinds of <clears throat> repeated experiences really accumulate and they have a different effect on people than say if you were in a car accident or you were date raped even once in college, right? So it's this repeated relational violation that causes the diagnosis for complex PTSD. And, you know, I've been working with Bessel van der Kolk since 1992, a long time. And he's really the one who tried to bring complex PTSD to the, to the forefront. You know, in his book, um, The Body Keeps the Score, did a huge movement forward to say, hey, there's a lot of different types of trauma here, and this is one of them right? This is one of them. You don't have to have broken bones or have been in a war in order to experience trauma. So that's really what we talk about when we're talking about complex PTSD, because the symptoms are different than single incident trauma. Like if you look at the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, or the way psychiatry organizes diagnoses, you know, Cluster one, cluster two, cluster three is like intrusive, hyperarousal, numbing and avoidance and um, intrusive images and, you know, increased heart rate. Complex PTSD has a whole different set of symptoms as a result of this type of relational trauma, right? Mm. I'll say two other things quickly. And then there's this 
cultural trauma. There's a whole new awareness of people that are, you know, growing up in different cultures and the trauma because of skin color, sexual orientation, gender, right? And then there's institutional trauma growing up, you know, being traumatized in a church or in some kind of institution. There's transgenerational family trauma, the trauma that gets passed down, like as a Holocaust survivor or whatever, right? Um, And then there's the more severe types of trauma, say people who have dissociative identity disorder, or for some people, multiple personality, right? So a lot of different types of trauma, you know, and the list, as I said, keeps growing, but the complex PTSD is for that relational realm. You You can develop that in adulthood if you're in a really unhealthy relationship too. Mm. Yeah, and given how complicated it is, it seems like it would be hard to treat whatever modality you wind up using. Yes, it is. You know, these CE or continuing education organizations love complex trauma. Mm. Nobody sells more courses than complex trauma. It's really challenging to work with somebody who oftentimes have been in dysfunctional relationships since very early on, sometimes you know, postnatal preverbal, right? Before even words, when you think about attachment trauma um, to throughout the lifespan, these people don't trust people. They don't want to be in relationships. And so to go to therapy with a total stranger and tell them your intimate details about your life, uh uh-uh. Like it's a setup for failure, right? These are very complicated set of circumstances. And it really activates the therapist a lot because they don't really know how to manage this. So it's specialized treatment for sure, regardless of what modality you decide to use. But these are challenging cases, but people can get better. That's the thing that I love about doing this work is people can really heal from this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and uh, I think even though the book is titled that there's a lot to learn in here, even if you don't have complex PTSD yeah. or if you're an IFS practitioner, like there's yeah. all kinds of gems and nuggets in here that would apply even if you don't have that kind of diagnosis. That's right. That's right. Yeah. I, You know, it was kind of the first book was like a how to how to do IFS, the IFS skills training manual. This book honestly was more of like the culmination of my clinical career. It was like I'm putting everything I've learned over the last, you know, so many years into this book. So it's not only about complex PTSD. That is the most challenging for therapists oftentimes. But yeah, I wanted to really make it a comprehensive kind of trauma book, different than Bessel's book. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's a really honest book about your clients and about the profession and sometimes about yourself. Yep. I'm going a little off script here, <laughs> but I'm wondering like, totally fine. <laughs> yeah. Do you, are there some parts like as an author in the writing process, are there some recurrent parts that you have that need talking, talkings to, or talking to's, um, as you put stuff down on paper, that's like a little more, um, sensitive or things like that. Like I remembering you had a, a client who was like pretty argumentative and was like, kind of doing some ad hominem attacks on you. And I was like, wow, like he's putting this stuff in here. So I wonder what that's like for you. So I think I'm kind of a unique bird in this way. Okay. And what I mean by that is this, I am very forthcoming with my trauma history and I'm very forthcoming with personal experiences that I've had with my clients 
and in my personal life. Okay. And I say I'm kind of an odd duck, if you will, because a lot of specialists and professionals have this us them mentality. I'm the specialist and I'm going to teach you how to handle your trauma. That never has felt right to me, honestly. Mm. And I, you know, honestly, I was a trauma survivor before I was a trauma specialist. I will tell you that. And I really believe that the way to one of the main ways, besides the knowledge that I've accumulated over the years of doing this work, is sharing my story with people. Um, it feels really important to me. Um, it gets rid of this power differential that's inherent in trauma, like perpetrator, victim, expert, you know, student. There's a power differential in that. And I, I want to dispel that as much as possible. You know, I don't know if you know this or not, but I've written a memoir. I didn't know that. That is my late. You did or didn't? Did not. No. Yeah. That is my latest project. I'm in the final stages of editing this memoir. It's coming out May 7th. Congrats. Um, I'm super excited about it. And you want to talk about a personal journey? (laughs) Write a memoir. I am really putting everything in my, of my history, the good and the bad in this to show people that we are all complicated. We've all experienced overwhelming things. And in order for me to kind of reach the general public, I thought this is the best way to do that is by telling my story. Um, So yeah, I'm very, that's a big piece of who I am and how I think healing can happen in the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's definitely a lot of earned wisdom in here. Um, Something that stands out to me and I'm, again, not looking at my notes, is, uh, you know, I've, I think I've read a lot of books or had a lot of people try to tease apart the difference between compassion and empathy. Yeah. But in this book, you not only provide definitions, but you also provide a bit of insight around when each is valuable to the client and maybe even valuable to the clinician. Do you want to say a little bit about when you know which lever to pull or, or just some general thoughts around that? Yeah, yeah, thank you, because I, I do love that work, and that's kind of unique, in, in, and it was kind of doing what I love, which is kind of bridging neuroscience and clinical work together, right? Like, this was a, that, there's where it's a true blending of the science informing the clinical decision-making, and it intuitively makes sense to me. So this friend of mine, Tanya Singer, who's a researcher at the Max Planck Institute in Germany, did a bunch of research on, she's an empathy researcher, but she did this big study on empathy versus compassion. So looked at brain scans, how to teach empathy, how to teach compassion. She, this is her life's work. And when I started looking at some of her research and then the work that I do as an IFS trainer and therapist is like, wait a minute, when she's talking about compassion and we see what's happening in the brain, compassion is the ability to be with somebody, hold space for them and care about them. So compassion is about the other person, Mm. right? And this is a, a definition that's rooted in neuroscience, right? So different people can have different definitions of compassion, but it involves the dopamine system. We're seeking to help the other, but it implies that I'm holding space for you when I'm in compassion. And I was like, wow, that's a lot like what internal family systems calls self-energy, 
When you're in self-energy, you're holding space, a loving space for the person that you're with. Then when I started reading the empathy literature, and this is the definition that she has, is of resonating with somebody else's suffering. And it's not, I, I was always thought, oh, I'm all therapy, a lot of therapists are super sensitive and there's a lot of highly sensitive people in the world, you know, there's this whole thing. But when I, when I dive a little deeper, empathy is not really, I'm feeling yours. It's not that I'm, I, it's more that I'm feeling mine mm-hmm. while I'm with you and you're feeling yours. So it's not that I'm picking up, I'm not feeling your feelings. I'm actually feeling my wounding when you're feeling your wounding. So it's like a blending, like we're share, we're, you know, we're feeling similar emotions because we've had similar experiences, like not the same detail, but the same emotion. If you've been hurt and you start crying, I could start crying because it, it activates the places and memories of me when I was hurt. So empathy is like, I'm feeling with you. Like I'm feeling with you. And, and that's a very different thing. And, you know, the th- other thing is you can burn out with too much empathy. Mm-hmm. Empathy is not sustainable. Like we get exhausted, we get overwhelmed. Compassion is sustainable. There's no such thing as compassion fatigue but there is empathic distress, right? So when I start looking at this around healing trauma, when you're working with somebody, sometimes they need you to hold the space. Just be here with me. Don't feel it with me. It's going to be, I'm overwhelmed already. I don't need you to be overwhelmed too, right? So there are moments where holding space is exactly what the person needs or the part of them needs. You know, this is too much for me. I'm overwhelmed. I need you to be the strong presence. And there are other times that clients or parts of clients need us to feel it. They want to know that we really get it Hmm. on an emotional level, right? And so there are other moments where feeling it with you is therapeutic for you, right? Hmm. And oftentimes we're not so conscious or deliberate about it. We just move in and out of what we think the other person needs and we rarely ask them and we're not really attuned. Like, are you needing me to hold space or are you needing me to join you in the emotion? Right. And so I think it's, I think it's, how are we with people? You know, for me, um, Joshua, it also goes outside of psychotherapy. It's like in relationship, you know, when you're in a relationship with someone, Sometimes they need you to join them in the feeling and sometimes they need you to hold space for them, right? So I think this is a, a skill set for life, even outside of psychotherapy. Yeah, from, from remembering the book, I, I wonder if the times in which a client or even just a friend needs the empathy, at least in the clinical setting, is maybe it's a trust thing, like they want you to feel it so that they can tell that like you're listening or you care whereas like compassion can be a little more detached that's that's interesting so yes sometimes people want us to feel it with them and sometimes it's like are you really with me are you feeling it too sometimes it's because they're shut down and and when you're shut down and you're numbed out or disconnected it helps you to feel if I'm feeling with you, 
Mm. Understand that? So like we can get numbed out and shut down and we're disconnected from ourselves. And if we're with somebody who's feeling it with me, feeling what's underneath, it helps me feel it too. So there's a lot of different reasons. Compassion, like sometimes when I'm needing you to feel it with me and you're compassionate, yes, I could feel that as distancing. Like, where are you? I need you to be here, right? So compassion can feel distancing to parts that need us to join them in their emotion. Compassion can feel exactly right to what we need in a moment when we're totally overwhelmed and we need somebody to hold the space, right? Mm -hmm. So it does vary in different times. People do need different things, right? And it's always good to ask, like, what was it like for you when I just teared up when you were crying? For example, like, Mm. did that freak you out? Or did that make you feel seen and heard and known? Right? Mm. I always say, ask the person, you know, like I'm being silent right now. Is that, is that helping you? Or is that feel like I'm not really here with you? Right? Mm. You can always check it out. Yeah, that's great. That's great. I, I don't have like a, a history of education in normal or just non-IFS psychological education, but it seems like having the distance between clinician and and client is really important. And I I can get a sense that the conversation we're having now and the work you're doing and what's contained in this book um, differs from that. Yes, that's right. Distance. So yes, it's important to have distance and objectivity because especially when you're working with trauma, you're with some really horrendous, overwhelming experiences. And the client does need you to hold space around that, right? So some distance and objectivity is useful. And in other moments, and it really does, when I'm going through the kind of steps of the healing process, I know that different moments require different things, right? So there are other moments where people really do need us to feel it along with them, not to the point of being overwhelmed, not to the point of being overwhelmed, because if you're freaking out, like, holy shit, and then I'm freaking out, yeah, holy shit, like, that ain't helpful, right? That is not helpful, but I like to think of empathy informing compassion. Like, as the therapist, I'm going to use, like, if I start welling up, Mm. I want to use those feelings to be able to be with you in the way that you need it the most. Mm. Right? So the empathy informs compassion when we're conscious of it. Does that make sense? Oh, I see. So like if you're feeling a lot of the feeling, it's a, it's maybe a, a, a good guess that they're also feeling a lot of the feeling and therefore yes. it seems like compassion is the right lever to pull. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, I'm glad that there's so much subtlety here because it gives me faith that the bots won't be coming for us so soon. That's right. <laughs> right? I don't think it will, honestly. I, I think the bots will provide a lot of value for a lot of people that can't afford therapy. Like yeah. I see value in it um, in a certain kind of way. Like, for example, here are the 10 useful skills for treating panic attacks. Awesome. You can get that in a, you know, within 45 seconds or whatever that the, the natural response of AI is, right? So I think collecting information and disseminating information is going to be really awesome and quick and efficient. 
I think being with people in these ways that are very intuitive, that require you to utilize your your own emotional state, be aware of your own history in order to fully be with somebody in the way that they need. AI is not going to be able to do that for quite a while in my estimation, but who knows? I could be wrong, but yeah. Yeah. That makes me think of a couple of things. I guess one thing I would say is that I know that because I have so much like trust and like love, even for my current therapist, mm-hmm. sometimes I can't get certain parts to show up around her because they. Ju- I just feel so safe. Yeah. So being alone and using some kind of device, sometimes I can touch into things that are only present when I'm alone. Yeah. So that's that's a use case. That's right. Um, yeah. I guess the other thing I wanted to ask about, and it's in my notes, is like kind of what you're saying about needing to touch into your own system. It seems like IFS, and this goes back to the difference between it and other modalities, really focuses a ton on the clinician's mental health, their well-being, their yes. sense of self, their self-energy. Yes. And I haven't I haven't trained in anything else. It's it is a gap, right? Like if you go and you take like a CBT course or a DBT course, right. they're they're not gonna focus so much on you getting healed first, are they? Right. No, they're not. Um, th- there is a term in kind of psychodynamic psychotherapy called countertransference or in psychoanalysis. Countertransference is the therapist's feelings towards the client. Okay. But it's usually because of what the client does. <laughs> like I'm going to have feelings because you're manipulative. So of course I'm going to be angry at your being manipulative, right? It's about the client. This in IFS is about therapist parts. Mm. And therapist parts are about their history, not the client. Okay. So in our level one training, for example, most of the training for therapists in IFS level one is like, get to know your own parts because your parts can get in the way of being fully open, loving, and compassionate for your client. And we want to help therapists know themselves well enough so that they know when their issues come up in the midst of being with somebody and getting back to the complex trauma diagnosis, right? If you're with, if you're a therapist and excuse me for calling them all out, you don't become a therapist just because it's a really cool profession. Sorry. You become a therapist because you've experienced your own wounding and you want to learn about yourself and you want to help somebody else. So therapists inevitably have their own histories. And so their stuff is going to get activated when they're sitting with somebody. Now, maybe it's the same, maybe it's not, right? But it's very common for therapist parts to show up when they're working with their clients. And they have to know how to clear that space. They have to maybe heal some of the stuff that comes up. Because when therapist parts show up, clients can feel it and therapies don't go well. It's the same thing with kids. When you're a parent, your kid knows you're kind of losing it or in a really bad space. They know it. They've lost their safe parent. So clients pick up when therapist parts get activated. Yeah. You know, you can, t- right? You, you can tell. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's obvious even in non-clinical yes. settings when yes. you know someone has an agenda. It's, it's strange how good we are. 
yes. at detecting that kind of thing. That's exactly right. And the other person might not be aware of it because they're being taken over by their parts, right? So they might not be aware of it, but but we are because we can feel it. Like what just happened there? You're like, you're not what I know right now in this moment. So it's important to be able to acknowledge that. And like in IFS, we're not a blank screen. Now, if you said, hey, Frank, what's going on? You keep like looking away. Are you bored? Are you disinterested? Like, like, well, hold on. Let me check. Let me see what's going on right now. Because you're picking up on something and I trust that. And I got to look into myself and say, what is going on? What, you know, and I will name, you know, wow, there's a part of me that is distracted. And honestly, it has nothing to do with you because I'm thinking about so-and-so or yeah, every time you start getting cognitive, I think I lose attention. So I need to pay attention to that. So like mm. we really encourage therapists to own their shit, mm. right? When it comes up with clients, because it's usually connected to something important. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And it could be a bridge. Safety. What's it's, that? It creates safety in the relationship. Yeah. Like if I'm I know myself and I'm honest enough about who I am. You're going to feel safer to reveal your stuff with me. Mm. Right. As yeah. opposed to needing them to be perfect. Yeah. Yeah. It creates the possibility, I think, for even a stronger connection. Yes. Um, yeah. Right. It can be hard for clients to give honest feedback to their therapists because they have like people pleasing parts and all of that. And they're afraid. (laughs) Yes, that's right. It's it's useful. That's right. right. Well, it it does. That's where I get into like, let's even the playing field here. Like I'm just like you. I have my issues. You have your issues. If you ever see them, just point them out. I'll do the best to, you know, I'll do the best to acknowledge them and name them. I'm not going to share the gory details with you because that's inappropriate, but I can acknowledge, yeah, you're right. Something did come up for me. I'll do my best to take care of it. If you notice it again, please let me know. The the IFS hypothesis about this like multiplicity of, you know, whoever you are is such an, it's such a breakthrough in like nomenclature and, conceptualness like you know the buddhists have been saying for thousands of years like this is not you are not your mind you are not your mind but this like gives it an entire language in order to like create like literally not literally maybe literally create the separation or at least acknowledge it yeah that's exactly right yeah no it's true you when i was in training and when i did my residency we learned that multiplicity was pathological like, oh, you're Sybil. Like, you have multiple personality disorder. We have to make you whole again. Like, it was a whole different paradigm, you know. And Dick Schwartz, the founder of IFS, really created a paradigm shift here to say, well, actually, maybe multiplicity is the norm. Maybe we all have different parts of ourselves, right? And that that's normal. And different parts will serve different functions and different roles depending on what we go through in life. And, excuse me, intuitively, people resonate with that. You know, they kind of say, aren't you different when you're, like, hanging out with your buddies or when you're playing with your kids in the backyard or when you're, like, going for a run? Like, we're all different aspects of our personality, right? The problem is when we go through trauma or something overwhelming, 
those same parts take on extreme roles to try to protect us or they're burdened with carrying the pain. That's what we're here to heal. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, it sort of calls to mind the section of the book that you have about doing parts work without calling it IFS or without mm -hmm. calling it parts. Yes. I thought, I thought that was really instructive, for, especially for clients who find it cringy or a little bit too woo-woo or, or totally. bizarre. And you've got to get comfortable, know the model well enough, because some people get really, I'm not a part, don't say that, I don't use that word. Like I'm like, okay, fine. We don't have to use the word, right? But we can still do the work. Mm -hmm. You know, let's use your language. When I'm pissed off, okay, when you're pissed off, tell me more. How does pissed off help you? You know what I mean? I'm just use. I'll use your language. I don't have to say the word part ever. Right? Yeah. Um, it, you know, there's, I don't know if you've been to page seven in a while, but. <laughs> <laughs> no, I haven't. I would probably say that's true. <laughs> yeah. uh, it, it is a little bit like Buddhism in so far as how many lists there are, like the, the five P's, the six F's, the eight C's. Uh, it reminds me of that. All right. So. I have to tell you, it drives me crazy, these mnemonics, honestly. Like, mm -hmm. I understand, like, I wasn't there when Dick Schwartz created this model 40 years ago, but, you know, I've been doing IFS since 2004. Um, but I it, I get a little bit crazy with the six Ps, the five Fs, the four Fs, the eight Cs. The eight Cs are the ones that drive me crazy the most. Like, I have parts up around the eight Cs. Like, let me say mm -hmm. that. And it's because... People try to latch on to these words as if that's what healing is about. Mm. Right? And so therapists who are new to the model or don't know it well are going to latch on to these words. Are you a firefighter? Are you a manager? I'm like, I hate those words. Like, it's like, no, I'm not a firefighter. I'm, not, I, I'm, a, I'm a psychiatrist. Like, what are you saying? Right. So there's a way that the model does need to be organized with mnemonics so people can learn it. But more often than not, clients latch on to that external instead of being connected to their internal experience. You know what I mean? Like so many people will say, I'm kind, I'm compassionate, I'm curious, like the eight C's of self-energy. Mm. And like, no, you have no self-energy right now at all. Like self-energy is loving and calm and open. But because the mnemonic says eight C's of self-energy, then somebody says, oh, I'm, I'm curious. I'm like, no, you're not. <laughs> you're just mm -hmm. using the C word. You know what I mean? It's kind of like that. So I understand the value, but it can really take people away from honestly being with their experience authentically. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I think you find that a lot in, in all kinds of stuff, like right. in, in mindfulness people. Am I doing it right? Is yeah. it 20, 29 minutes or 30 minutes? You know? it's, it's exactly right. So it did, so there's a way that, yes, there's value to setting structure and there's a way that the structure impedes the growth. Mm -hmm. There's uh, some stats on page 13 that I thought were quite alarming. Hmm. Um, and obviously you're citing something from, I guess, a while ago, but I think it was like 20% reported sexual abuse. I, I don't know yeah. if this is a, 
a small sample or this is the general population, but I guess these kinds of like, a, you know, these relational violations are, are not completely uncommon, right? Like this kind of stuff happens a lot. This stuff happens a lot. I think 80% of the people. Yeah. No. And, and those are not Frank's numbers. I've looked up the research and, you know, cited everything. So all the references are there. Um, this is a thing. And, you know, Gabor Mate is a friend of mine and he holds a very similar view as I do is that we all have had some kind of overwhelming life experience. Everybody has a trauma history in my belief system. Now, yes, I'm a trauma therapist and I see a lot of trauma, but if you start looking at it, we've all experienced things that are overwhelming, especially in that relational realm. Like everybody hasn't, you know, had car accidents or been in gun violence or, you know, whatever. Like there's a, everybody hasn't been sexually abused, right? There's a percentage of people that certainly have. But what our culture and society is really becoming aware of is that there's a lot more trauma here than we've ever really known or paid attention to before. You know, the, when you look at the um, ACE study that I mm-hmm. talked about here, you know, that was a huge study done in California looking at the number of traumatic events that children have and all the medical problems that they end up gaining as an adult because of the trauma that they experience. So, so much of what ails us, in my view, is the early childhood trauma, is the traumatic experiences that we bury to survive instead of deal with. Like our natural tendency is bury it, Mm. push it away. And that really causes problems. Like, you know, everybody went through this pandemic. That was a global trauma. And it really activated a lot of people's histories. You know, you can't be, for a long time, you couldn't find a therapist who was available. Everyone Mm -hmm. was desperate for help because their histories got activated in addition to the current trauma. I call that a double trauma. Like current trauma activates your past, right? Mm. So yeah, I have a purpose of bringing trauma healing to the world. It's not my purpose, it's a larger purpose. And I know I've been called toward that purpose because of how much we are ailing um, as a culture, as a society, as a world. Um, And so I'm happy to be a part of the solution. Yeah, yeah, and thank you for your work. Yeah, yeah. Um, It's not only me that's gonna do it, it's a collective, that's for darn sure. Right. Yeah. And unfortunately, you know, it keeps getting created. There's like wars going on and yes. stuff that's just going to be like not just the death count or, or the destruction of cities. Like you're yes. creating like just big buckets of work for therapists. That's right. That's exactly. You know, it was one of the things I was like, well, I'm never going to be out of work. <laughs> I've got job security. Unfortunately, <laughs> like mm-hmm. it's, you know, it's really it's it's a it's a, I, I do think, though. I feel that there's a greater awareness and I think there's a tide shift. Uh, You know, I've been in this field since 1992 and it's very different now. Like go to Instagram, go to TikTok and half of the posts are about healing and trauma and, you know, helping mental illness and teen suicide or whatever. So there, there really is a shift in our consciousness around a collective of, hey, this is real. 
hey, we've got to do something about it. So I, I hold a hopeful view of people joining up to help because it, it is getting worse and worse in some ways. Yeah. So I'm curious about why the cognitive science matters to you. Because when I read it, and I'm, you know, as skeptical as they come, and I'm evidence-based, blah, 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 I'm really into it. But I, my eyes kind of, you know, dull over a little bit when it's like, oh, the parts is because of neuron number six. Like, yes. I'm curious, but for you, why does it matter for you? Why do you like having that as part of the work that you do? I mean, because we know IFS is working, at least it works for me, it works for other people I've met. What's the, what's the importance of having the neuroscience there? Yeah, that's a great, that's a great question. Not many people ask me that. And, you know, it kind of goes back to my natural curiosity about my body. Like I've always had this fascination about how this body works. Like my dad was a pharmacist. I always thought I was going to be a pharmacist just like him, but I was fascinated by the human body. It's like, how does this work? Like, how does your heart pound? Like, how does your stomach digest food. Like I've always had this natural curiosity about how things work, like since a kid. And so when I got into medicine, when I got into medical school or even college and started doing some courses, I was like, this is amazing. This is fascinating. So I've always had this like natural interest in getting to the core of how something works, particularly with our body. When I start learning about neuroscience and neurology and psychology and all this stuff, then the treatment makes sense to me. I like making sense of why I'm doing what I'm doing. Okay. Mm. And this is some of the medical knowledge and medical training that I've had. Like, you know, we learn, we read a lot of research studies. And if you can prove something is true, it has a different kind of validity as opposed to, well, this is just what I do. And so this is what it works. So I've been trained not only to listen to only things that have been proven with research, but there's, there's some validity to these interventions. This is one of my main contributions to the IFS world is bringing neuroscience to the IFS model. Vic Schwartz reached out to me years ago and asked me to start doing that so that it's not just a, a woo-woo random thing. There, it's rooted in some science and research, and it really works. You know, Bessel, when I talked to Bessel, Bessel, we were at Bessel, Dick and I were at a conference, and Bessel was doing the keynote, and he said, if IFS works, prove it. You know, I was like, okay. So then I started doing research. Dick asked me to run a foundation and we started doing research on IFS, right? But I just love that I'm not just saying this. Like when I tell you about empathy and compassion, it's it's not only, this is what I think. It's like, it's in the brain and we see it and it's right there. And I'm going to use a lot of my I'm going to use a lot of my interventions that I know are rooted in legitimacy. Mm. You, see, you see what I'm saying? And, and some people don't care about that, and that's fine. I like saying something that has truth and validity to back it. Like when I wrote that book, I did a lot, you know, I did a lot of research. There's some of my opinion in there, and I'm like, this is my view, and then there's this is 
what supports this or what supports that. Like, you know, writing a memoir is so interesting. There's no footnotes and no research Mm. when you write a story about your life. Like it's totally different. Right. But yeah, no, when I want to say an intervention works, I want to have something to back it. Right. And that feels good to me. And I understand that it doesn't, everybody doesn't care about that and that's fine. Yeah. No, I, I appreciate it. I care about it a lot. I think I've just kind of drank the IFS Kool-Aid so much that now I <laughs> care about it less now. So. That's right. That's right. Well, and Dick Schwartz cares about it because he wants it to be evidence-based. So he's like, let's mm-hmm. do the research. You know, but it is. It, it, but when Bessel said it takes like 10 years to prove in research what you already know works, like then it's kind of silly. Like we know this works. Why do we have to prove it? But it's, that's part of the process. Yeah, and surely there have been some psychological methods or interventions that actually didn't work, right? right? And people thought that they did. So That's exactly right. Yeah, it helps. So is this something that's puzzled me and I've heard answers and now I, I think I kind of understand it, but I'm still, um, I don't know if curious is, but I still find it remarkable, is this thing that happens to young people like kids and I'm quoting from the book here on page 94, when kids are left alone with their traumatic experiences, they need to make sense of the situation and they often take responsibility for what was done to them. So they had us watch a video in um, not like the off-brand level one, which is uh, (laughs) IFSCA. And it had a video where the story was something like the kid needs to survive. And because the kid needs to survive, the shortest path to solving the problem is thinking the problem is them. Mm-hmm. And if the problem is them, then they can maybe do something about it. Then their parents will love them and give them food and whatever else they need. Yeah. Is this why kids arrive at these factually, oftentimes factually incorrect conclusions that are often sort of self damaging or tell, tell difficult stories about themselves? Is that, is that the reason? I think it's complicated. I think that's one of the reasons I think we as human beings need to make sense of our experience and of the world. I think that's kind of a natural phenomenon for us. And especially with children who are so vulnerable and dependent on others for survival, the stakes are higher. Okay. And so when something happens and the person who does it doesn't take responsibility for it, Right. Remember, we talked earlier, like we know when something's going on for the other person, like when it feels weird, when I feel something inside and nobody says, hey, you know what this is about? I yelled at you and I shouldn't have yelled at you. I'm really sorry. That's mine. If nobody says that Mm. and you yell at me and it feels really bad and you act like nothing's wrong. I have like, so what is this? Like what happened here? Oh, it must be me. Mm. Oh, it must be me. Oh, it's my fault. This is for me. I talk about vulnerability and how wounds develop. When we share our authentic self and somebody else reacts harshly to it, you worthless piece of crap, and they don't take responsibility for their behavior, I'm going to be like, I'm a worthless piece of crap. I'm going to internalize that experience and I'm going to blame myself. And kids do this. It's survival. Like I need you for survival. 
So if you're not going to take responsibility for it, I have to. It must be me. Right. Mm. So it's complicated, but it happens over and over and over again. Kids take responsibility for what parents don't. And people in domestically abusive relationships do the same thing. You know, we take responsibility. Like uh, with my kids, I had a, grown up, I don't have a startle really anymore, but I used to have a pretty significant startle. And I, I um, told my kids like, hey, I'm startling. And that's because I was hit when I was a kid because I didn't want them to take responsibility for my big reaction every time we were playing together. Like mm. you go on the trampoline and I'd freak out if they jump on me. I didn't want them to be like, oh, what did I do? Was that something mm. wrong? Just, you know what I'm saying? So it is, for me, it's important to take responsibility. And if we don't, <clears throat> um, kids will take it on. They do. Yeah. Yeah, and the way you've presented it with the responsibility, it's almost just like Occam's razor. Like yeah. the kid, the kid doesn't have a, like a whole bunch of different possible explanations to believe, and the parent is ask, acting as if there's no problem or it's not them. So that's right. Right. It's just like, oh, okay, what explanations are available? Oh, yeah. I'm bad. Huh. That's right. Must be me. It's not right. them. They're not saying, oh, honey, I shouldn't have done that. Yeah, it's really in interesting. Communications, really. Mm -hmm. And people, just generally speaking, have a hard time saying, I'm sorry, or taking responsibility right. stuff, because then they feel shame and blah, 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 this other stuff. Because it brings up their wounds from their childhood. You know, therein lies the, we all are holding some of this. There's a there's a whole bunch of stuff in the book about neglect that I thought was really interesting, and I won't tell you why. <laughs> <laughs> and I won't guess either. <laughs> but yeah, you have here on page 127 um, about a neglect-driven system that it leads folks into having a difficult time connecting with what they feel and struggle with making decisions. They obsess pros and cons relationship between these folks and OCD diagnosis. I yeah. think that's my own notes. If you begin to listen, you'll realize that it's their thinking parts working overtime to protect them from feeling the emptiness, loneliness, and loss that's buried deep inside. So connect some dots for me, like neglect, decision paralysis, like what is going on there? Yeah. Neglect is, is so under, neglect is underrated. It really is. It's a profound, has profound impact. Kids who, the absence of something, the silent wound is really difficult. Like I, you know, I remember used to like, oh, I wish my bone was broken. Like I wish then I, there's something to point to. There's something to see. Neglect doesn't have that, right? It's the absence of something. And kids internalize that neglect. So when you've been neglected, you have an internal neglector. So you neglect yourself and your feelings. You've learned to not pay attention to yourself. You've learned that your feelings weren't important. You learned that your needs weren't important. So you, in, you have an internal neglector, which helps you protect, like you internalize neglect to help you protect from the utter aloneness and abandonment that you feel on some level, because it's way too painful. Mm. If my mother doesn't even care enough to buy me clothes, 
my dad doesn't even care enough to buy me food or to let me sit here and ship. Like, I really must be horrible. So there's a big shame wound that's at the bottom of neglect, Mm -hmm. just like there's a shame wound at the bottom of verbal abuse. You worthless piece of crap, you're going to feel there's a shame wound at that. But there's also a shame wound at, I am that insignificant. Mm. My parent doesn't even mount a response or care. And so it's so painful to hold, to feel that level of alone, of lack of love that we tend to, and not it's not 100%, but we tend to have intellectual, must be this, figure out parts, figure out parts. We tend to have intellectual parts that fill the gap. Fill the gap. What about, you know, it must be this, must be, oh, if I do this, then this, like, they have to try to figure it out. They have to try to make sense of it. And oftentimes, it's not only, but oftentimes intellectual protectors are protecting neglect wounds. And they're very hard to step back. Like, for if you have intellectual protectors, and boy, did I, you know, like, smart was who I was. That's Mm -hmm. who I was, right? Mm -hmm. Those parts don't want to step back. They're very reluctant to step back because if I step back, there's utterly nothing. And that's terrifying. So they're tenacious in their figuring it out and understanding it and trying to make sense of it so we don't have to feel the utter emptiness that is rooted, that is the the wound of neglect. Mm. Work to do. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and then like then loss like it's everything it's like losses at the bottom of everything right alone and loss and so mm. oh my gosh i can't make a decision because if i pick the green shirt that means i can't have the red shirt like oh my god if i choose this then i can't have this so so these difficulty making decisions is often rooted and i don't want to feel any loss so is hoarding you know like i'm going to collect as many things as I can, so I don't have to feel the alone. Mm-hmm. Attached to objects or things, right? Yeah, yeah. Some progress I've made on this front with my therapist is like recognizing the folks that are not me that are trying really hard to make a decision, and yeah. in fact, you know, they they ain't me. So yeah, that's the good news. That's right. That's the different that kind of that differentiation. Yeah. Cool, Frank. Thanks so much for writing this book for coming on the podcast. This has been a great conversation and a greater read. So thanks. Thanks for everything. Thank you for what you're doing. And thank you for having me. And as you know, if we can touch as many people as possible around helping and healing, it's been a good day.